सहनावतो सहनोभुनक्तो सहवेदियंकरवावहै तेजस्विनावधितमस्तुमा विद्विशावहै ओम शांतिशांतिशांतिहिं ओम पूर्णमद पूर्णमिदं पूर्णात्पूर्णमुदच्छते पूर्णस्य पूर्णमादाय पूर्णमेवावशिष्यते ओम शान्तिशान्तिशान्ति श्रुतिस्मृतिपुराणानाम् आलयं करुणालयं नमामि भगवत् पाद शंकरं लोकशंकरं शंकरं शंकराचार्यं केशवं बालरायणं सूत्रभाष्यकृतौ वन्दे भगवन्तौ पुनः पुनः ईश्वरो गुरुरात्मेदे मूर्तिभेदविभागिने व्योमवद्व्याप्तदेहाय दक्षिणामूर्तये नमः गुकारस्त्वन्धकारस्च रुकारस्तन्निवर्तकः कारनिरोधित्वाद गुरुरित्यभिधियते सदा शिवसमारंभाम शंकराचार्य मध्यमाम अस्मदाचार्य पर्यंताम वंदे गुरु परंपराम During this week, we are going to discuss a section of the 18th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. It is the concluding chapter. And in this chapter, Lord Krishna summarizes the entire teaching of Bhagavad Gita. And as Shankaracharya explains, Lord Krishna even summarizes the teaching of the entire Vedas. Because Bhagavad Gita is looked upon as the very essence of the Vedas, Upanishads primarily. So Bhagavad Gita has in fact the Sarva Vedartha Sara Sangraha. It is the Sangraha, the accumulation of the essence of the entire Vedas. And as we know Vedas primarily have these two subject matter. One is karma and other is jnanam. The action and knowledge are the two subject matters of Veda. Or are an action which is a dharma. Dharma and Brahma, these are the two subject matters of Veda. Veda is the scriptures, revealed scriptures, and they are praman on the valid means of knowledge for those subjects which cannot be comprehended by human intellect. And these are the two subjects. One is dharma. What is dharma? What is righteousness in life? It is something that a human being cannot determine merely by himself. Although we can generally, but still, it is very difficult for us. Dharma means doing something which is right. 
What is called dharma and what is called dharma? Because there is an order obtaining the creation and an action that is performed in keeping with that order would be called dharma. Because dharana dharma, that which upholds is called dharma. That which sustains, that which upholds is called dharma. It is very interesting that Bhagavad Gita begins with the word dharma. In the very first verse of Dhritarashtra, dharma kshetre kurukshetre. So Dhritarashtra is asking, asking this question of Sanjaya. What happened when in, in Kurukshetra, that is the battlefield, which is Dharmakshetra, which is a Kshetra or a field of Dharma, of righteousness. What happened when my, my children and the Panda, Pandu's children assembled to fight? What happened? <coughs> it's interesting how it begins with the word Dharma. In a way, that is how, in giving us hinting, what is going to be the subject matter of Bhagavad Gita, Dharma is a subject matter of Bhagavad Gita. <coughs> Two-fold Dharma. In fact, Gita subject matter is said to be Brahma Vidya and Yoga Shastra. So, it is very interesting that even rather than using the word Dharma, the word Yoga is being used. See, at the end of every chapter, we recite what we call the Sankalva Vakya, this Srimad Bhagavad Gita Su. Upanishadsu, Brahma Vidyayam, Yoga Shastra, Shri Krishna Arjuna Samvade, Bhagavad Gita, which is of the nature of Samvada or dialogue between Lord Krishna and Arjuna. And which the dialogue has these two primary subject matters, Brahma Vidya and Yoga Shastra, knowledge of Brahman and knowledge of Yoga. So what is called karma in the, in the Vedas? or dharma in the Vedas is called yoga in the Bhagavad Gita. <coughs> if dharma is properly done in our life, it becomes yoga. And so, Vedas have these two primary subject matters, dharma, meaning an action that is performed in keeping with the obtaining order in the universe. Now, if our life becomes a translation of that order if every action that we perform is done in accordance with that order, then that action will be dharma. However, it becomes very difficult to determine what that order is in a given situation. Because one who has the knowledge of the entire order alone can determine what the dharma or the right action would be. And therefore, Vedas become the pramanam, the means of knowledge, to reveal what that order is. Because Vedas are Sarvajna omniscient, you require, one requires to be omniscient, all-knowing to understand what that order is. Because order is all-encompassing and therefore, in order to determine what that order is, one should be omniscient. So, Vedas are scriptures that are revealed, revealed by God, who is omniscient and therefore, the omniscience that God is alone becomes revealed in the Vedas. And therefore, Vedas tell us, what to do in a given situation? What is the right action for a given person in a given situation? This is how dharma is revealed by the Vedas. <coughs> so, in order to determine what is right for me, and that is how the life was divided, we will see in the 18th chapter also, into four stages, Brahmacharya, Grihastha, Vanaprastha, Sanyasa, the four stages of life, and what is proper for me to do in a given stage of life. All of this is revealed by the Vedas and therefore dharma, righteousness, what is right for me to do, 
what is beneficial for me? What is beneficial for me for my inner development or spiritual development is called dharma. Well, Vedas also address this need of human being that we, that which is what we call the material development. Abhyudaya and Nishreyasa. Abhyudaya means material prosperity. Nishreyasa means spiritual prosperity. So when is Veda primarily prescribes dharma or spiritual prosperity for the human beings, Vedas do not overlook this need of the human being that human being also has desire for material prosperity, artha and kama, comfort and pleasure is also what a human being desires. In the initial stage, when he is immature, this is what he desires. As he grows in maturity, his desires will change. But to begin with, his desires are for comfort and pleasure. And therefore, these desires also have to be addressed. We cannot demand that this comfort and pleasure are wrong thing to desire. Well, that's a desire. Therefore, accepting that as a desire, Vedas also prescribe what will be the proper way of fulfilling these desires. May the desires of Artha and Kama, comfort and pleasure also, may these desires be fulfilled in a righteous way. And therefore, in the four Purushartha, the Dharma is placed first. Even though the initial impulse is artha or karma, I want security, I want to survive, I want to be safe and secure, that is my first need. And when I feel a sense of security, then I want sense gratification, I want pleasure, that becomes the second need. That's the artha and karma are recognized to be this initial needs of human being. However, if these needs are fulfilled in what we call dharma or righteous way, then this artha and kama can be enjoyed by the person. If on the other hand, in the process of acquiring this discomfort and pleasure, if he sacrifices the righteousness, then the very artha kama will become a curse to him. It is not enough that we acquire prosperity. It is not enough that we have the means of enjoyment with us. It is necessary that we should have the capacity to enjoy them. So Vedas recognize that human being not only needs the means of enjoyment, but he also needs the capacity of enjoyment. And then that capacity has to be cultivated by following a certain way of life, which is called dharma. <coughs> so dharma, artha, kama. <coughs> so, these become then the topics of what we call the first section of the Vedas. And finally, as a person lives life based on dharma or righteousness, he grows in his maturity and slowly and slowly he becomes sensitive to his real need. That is a, that is a basic or fundamental need that human being has. It depends upon my sensitivity or understanding that need. When I am not a very mature person, I think that what I need is this comfort and pleasure. I think this is what I need. I mean, that is my interpretation of my need. As I grow in maturity, then I realize that that is not what I really need. And thus, he recognizes that what I need is something more fundamental. I need that which is permanent or eternal and therefore nothing impermanent can satisfy me. So if this recognition comes, that what I am seeking in my life is something permanent. And whatever I can acquire is all going to be impermanent. And therefore, anything that I acquire cannot satisfy the need that I have. 
If this maturity of this insight comes in life, then person then pursues something else, he pursues that which is permanent or eternal. And also recognizes that the means of attaining that is knowledge. And that's how from karma he comes to jnana. From activity he comes to what we call the pursuit of knowledge. <coughs> so these two lifestyles are taught by Vedas. Pravrutti and Nivrutti. A life of activity and a life of contemplation. In both of them, there must be dharma. Both in activity also, dharma must be there. Of course, in contemplation also, dharma must be Any kind of contemplation, not what Vedas mean. Because a physicist or, uh, you know, he is also a contemplative person. All, everybody, you know, there are many people who are contemplative. The scientists are contemplative, the writers and poets, and all these people are also contemplative artists. But what is important, what is subject matter of contemplation, that also becomes important. And therefore, Vedas then talk about a contemplative life, where the subject matter of contemplation is Brahma, is the ultimate reality. So, Dharma and Brahma. Because Brahma is other thing that, which is, that is something that which cannot, we cannot comprehend by our intellect, which also is beyond the comprehension of individual effort of the human intellect, and therefore, for Brahman also, we have to take, we have to resort to the scriptures. <coughs> Shruti Reva, Shruti Reva Pramanam, or Shruti alone becomes our refuge. <coughs> so, Dharma and Brahma, these are the two primary subject matters of Veda. And they are also the primary subject matters of Bhagavad Gita. Although, as we said, this Dharma is called yoga in the Bhagavad Gita because Bhagavad Gita does not address the needs of earth kama of a human being. Those needs of comfort and pleasures are not addressed by Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita primarily addresses the need of internal growth or spiritual growth of a human being. Therefore, it is Moksha Shastra rather than Dharma Shastra. Bhagavad Gita is Moksha Shastra rather than Dharma Shastra. It is Shastra of the scripture which tells us, which instructs us as to how to, how to fulfill the ultimate desire which is in our heart and that is the desire for moksha. So, the desire behind all the desires. As we said, in the initial stages, a human being feels that what he or she needs is his comfort and pleasure. But in course of time, by living the life of dharma, living the life of righteousness, living the life of discipline, a person recognizes that really what he's seeking is something permanent, that which is ultimate. He's seeking freedom, unconditional freedom is what he's seeking, and thus he recognizes his need to be moksha. So, Bhagavad Gita primarily addresses this need of the human being. It addresses then a person who has gained that kind of maturity. At least maturity recognizes what he needs. He may not have maturity to get moksha, but at least there is a maturity of recognition as to what he needs. Arjuna is a person like that. We see that transformation taking place in Arjuna. Arjuna, when he enters the battlefield, right in the beginning of the first chapter, we see an Arjuna who is a warrior and was determined to fight this battle and win the battle. Because until then, he was a seeker of artha and kama, discomfort and pleasure, However, he was a man who was committed to dharma or righteousness. 
He was son of Pandu. The Pandavas are those who are committed to dharma, righteousness. And against that, the Kauravas are those who who seem to be, for whom the end seems to be more important than the means. So Pandavas represent those people for whom the means is more important than the end. And Kauravas represent those people for whom the end is more important than the means. And therefore, the Pandavas represented by, led by Yudhishthira, they would be willing to live without the end, but make sure that the means are proper. Any proper means do not yield the desire and they are willing to live with that. That means following life of dharma. If it doesn't give them the kingdom, they are willing to live with that. Doesn't give them the comfort, willing to live with that. If they are to live in the forest, they are willing to live with that. Don't think that following dharma is easy at all. The Indian scriptures and I think scriptures of the world also will tell us how painful it is to follow the life of dharma. That's how Lord Rama in fact embodies dharma and shows nothing but suffering in his life. He did not suffer. We would suffer if we had to go through those situations. He did not suffer. That's a different matter. But he demonstrated what it takes to follow the life of dharma. Or let us say, what one should be prepared for? Maybe you are lucky enough that following dharma you don't have to really suffer at all. It's quite possible. Some people are lucky. And therefore, they get by without suffering. But the life of the Pandavas and life of Rama and life of many other people who are, whose stories we find in the Itihasa and Puranas, a lot of suffering is involved. A lot of what an ordinary person would call suffering. They themselves may not have called it suffering. But lot of suffering. Lot of deprivation. Apparently, lot of deprivation. To them it may not be deprivation. But then what we would call suffering, what we would call pain, what we would call deprivation, is what they had to go through in order to live what we call life of dharma, life of righteousness. So when the means are important, so that is called life of dharma where the means is more important than the end. Dharma. And the Pandavas, Yudhishthira, the eldest of them, in fact represents this life of dharma. <coughs> anyway, so Arjuna was also committed to dharma. He was a dharmanishta person. But when he enters the battlefield, he is a person who still wants victory. He wants kingdom. He wants power and everything that goes with the kingdom. He wants that. And a transformation takes place in Arjuna. It doesn't matter what brings about the transformation. In case of Arjuna, it was his pain that brought about the transformation. It is his grief. Pain very deeply felt in his heart. What triggered that pain was of course this particular topic or situation of the battlefield and the prospect of the death of all the near and dear ones. That is what triggers something in Arjuna. So whatever triggers that? Uh, for Gautam Buddha it may be something else. He just sees some uh, person who is old and having disease and person who is dead. And that triggers something in him. But we can say that something triggered all this situation in the battlefield triggered something in Arjuna and he became sensitive to his most fundamental need. And thus he asked of Lord Krishna, Yashriyasyat nishchitam gruhitanme, shishyasteham shadhimam tvam prapannam. O Lord, whatever it is that is decidedly good for me, 
Nishreyas means good. Nishchitam shreya, decidedly good for me. Oh Lord, I have attained a lot of good in my life, but it has never been decidedly good. The good comes and goes away. Or oh, whenever good comes, it also brings something bad with it, looks like. What I want is just good and decidedly good. So that which, which, which I can attain what is decidedly good for me, please teach me that. I am your disciple, teach me. So that is how Arjuna became a jignasu, a seeker of knowledge. Now this is what we mean by the second phase of life. Arjuna, that shows the tremendous maturity on the part of Arjuna. That he recognized that whatever difficulty he had or whatever pain he had can be now solved only by understanding something and not by achieving something. So, so far he was trying to deal with his pain by achieving things, hoping that when he becomes accomplished, you know, achieve, gains achievement, then the pain will go away. When he found the pain did not go away. Not only that, but all possible accomplishments which were in front of him, like the victory, like the kingdom, like the pleasures, that they will not be able to remove that pain. He himself says, Nahi prapasyami mamapunudya yachoka muchoshanam indriyanam so, that indriyam shokam, the grief that I am experiencing in my mind and the pain that I experience in my sense organs, I do not think, I do not see anything that can remove that. <clears throat> Even if I attain the unrivaled kingdom of the earth or I attain the kingdom of all the three worlds, Lord, I do not see how that pain which I feel in my sense organs, my whole being, that it can remove that pain. I do not see anything that can remove that pain. So this insight Arjuna had, that nothing that he can accomplish by his effort can deal with the pain or the grief that he had. And therefore, he became the seeker of knowledge. <coughs> that is how the second section of the Vedas, namely the Upanishad comes. Thus Upanishad does require a maturity. Bhagavad Gita requires less maturity than Upanishad. Upanishads are primarily taught to those who have sadhana, chatushtaya, sampatti, viveka, vairagya, samadhi, shatka, sampatti, mumukshutvam. So one who has discrimination, one who has dispassion, one who has that internal composure as well as the, the focus, and one who has a strong desire for liberation, so he is ideally a adhikari or a fit student for Upanishads. Thank God that Bhagavad Gita is not that demanding, otherwise it would have been very, it would not have been as popular as it is. Upanishads are great texts, but they will not become as popular as Bhagavad Gita. Because Upanishad addresses a student who has that maturity, who has all that inner preparation, who is a contemplative person and who is ready to perform that inquiry into the fundamental reality of life. And therefore, Upanishads confine themselves merely to the inquiry into the nature of reality. Not the preparation of the person. There are hints now and then, but generally speaking, Upanishad confines itself to the inquiry into the nature of reality, which is what Vedanta is. So really, Upanishads are Vedanta. Vedanta begins with only this inquiry. Tattva Vivekaha. What's the nature of Tattva Vivekaha? What's the nature of the uh, discrimination or the inquiry into the tattva, the truth. But Bhagavad Gita deals with the preparation as well. However, Bhagavad Gita deals with the preparation for what we call still a mature person. One who wants to, who is a mumukshu, one who wants liberation. 
one who has understood that, it is knowledge that can give him that liberation. That maturity Arjuna has, and therefore Bhagavad Gita addresses the aspirants of the seekers like Arjuna, who do not have sadhana chatushtha sampatti, the shamadi shatka sampatti, meaning the tranquility of the mind, a total discipline at the level of sense organs, and a total concentration of mind, which are requirements, still he may not have, he doesn't have. But he does have the maturity, he does have the understanding that what I am seeking is the decidedly guru, is moksha, and that knowledge is the means to gain that moksha. This maturity Arjuna has. Therefore, if we take this Bhagavad Gita and every day want to talk about applying in our mundane life, and Arthakama is what we want to accomplish through Bhagavad Gita, because very difficult. So understand that Bhagavad Gita primarily addresses a spiritual aspirant, one who understands the need of spiritual growth or inner growth, one who has sufficient vairagya or sufficient detachment from the worldly achievements or worldly accomplishments. So that's where we come to Bhagavad Gita. So Shankaracharya says that Bhagavad Gita is the essence of the teaching of the entire Vedanta. And the 18th chapter then is the summary of the entire Bhagavad Gita also. So thus we find in the 18th chapter a summary of the entirety, teaching of the entire Bhagavad Gita and thereby also the summary of the teaching of the entire Veda. <coughs> this is very important for Shankaracharya to say. It may not be so important for us perhaps, but it is very important for the traditional people to say this. Because what we... As far as the people brought up in India are concerned, for them the Veda is a Pramana. Veda is the ultimate means of knowledge. Vedas are the revealed scriptures. They are the source books. And any other books which are composed or written, they must conform to the vision of the Vedas. And then alone they gain the authority. This is what we discussed earlier. That Bhagavad Gita gains also an authority. Because it deals with the same subject matter as the Vedas. Although the devotees of Bhagavad Gita would think that Bhagavad Gita is even greater than Vedas. Because look, the one who revealed the Vedas is a teacher of Bhagavad Gita. So Vedas are revealed by the Lord and he himself is a teacher of Bhagavad Gita. He sees diversely directly hearing and therefore to some people Bhagavad Gita may be even dearer than Vedas. However, Texts like Bhagavad Gita, they gain their validity or authority because they derive their subject matter from the Vedas. Therefore, Shankarajara says in more than one places that Bhagavad Gita also is the essence of the teaching of the entire Veda. <coughs> and the 18th chapter is the summary of the entire Bhagavad Gita, which is what we find during this 18th chapter. Interestingly enough, the 18th chapter is called Moksha Sanyasa Yoga. So two subject matters of the 18th chapter, Moksha and Sanyasa. Moksha means liberation. Moksha means freedom. What kind of freedom? Unconditional freedom. Not just freedom, but then unconditional freedom. Freedom with no strings attached. That kind of freedom is called Moksha. Freedom from the external world as well as freedom from my internal problems. 
So very often person feels deprived, person feels helpless, person, you know, that I, I, I like to do something and I'm not able to do, I want something and I do not have that. So sense of helplessness is what a person is suffering from and I feel that I'm being persecuted by this world. Or I feel that I'm helpless in this world. So that is also a bondage. Freedom from even a sense of helplessness. Freedom from a sense of deprivation. And very often then there is also another compulsion that is coming from within. That something within me compels me to do something that I may not want to do. I may want to sit quietly and something within me compels me to do something. Very often I want to sit for meditation and something within me tells me, no Swamiji. What happened to, uh, you know, what happened to that uh, book that was to be published? Do you realize that you have to finish that portion? Get up and do that, forget about meditation, you know, and then my mind will compel me to get up, you know, to give up what I am doing and do something else. And when I am writing and working on that book, then again something within me tells me, Swamiji, wait a minute, how about having a cup of tea, you know? So, I think, uh, I think the mind is a bit tired. Let's have a cup of tea. All right. So, have a cup of tea. I start doing something. Then again something within me tells me, how about having a walk, you know, for half an hour? So, what I find is that there are two kinds of compulsion that I am suffering from today. One is compulsions coming from without me where I find myself helpless because I cannot call all the shots. I cannot do what I want to do. I cannot avoid what I want to avoid. I am confronted with various situations which I don't care to confront. I want to avoid, I cannot avoid. And I have to do without many things that I would like to have. There are many things I would want in my life and I have to do without them. There are many things that I don't care for having in my life and I am stuck with them. So this sense of helplessness one suffers from with reference to external world. And also a sense of helplessness one suffers from with reference to my own internal impulses, own internal compulsions. This compulsion is a word that, is, that I find in the political field also these days, you know, compulsions. How come the Prime Minister of such and such country did this? Because of the internal compulsions, because he is answerable to his people. Because he belongs to a given party, because he belongs to a given religion, because he belongs to this, because he has this kind of supporters. He must keep these people happy, he should not, he should make these people also, you know, in good humor. He must make sure that those people do not get, you know, uh, turned off from him. All these kind of balances, you know, to keep and therefore, you can hardly do what you want to do. Because I am so dependent. I am so dependent upon the world for my security that I must keep the world in good humor, otherwise I won't be secure. I am so dependent upon the people around me for my well-being that I must always make sure that they are happy with me. And therefore, many things that I would like to do internally, but then I stay away from doing that because I know I don't want to displease this person. Many things that I do not care to do, but I still do because I want to please that person. And this is how lots of compulsions coming from a sense of helplessness because I cannot control. Somebody is asking me, Swamiji, why do people have a tendency to control other people? This is it. Because I feel so helpless and so wretched that I feel when I control, when I can call short, then I feel that I'm alright. I feel that I'm strong enough or I'm alright if I can control others. And therefore, this, this helplessness, this is what we call bondage. 
this helplessness with reference to external world, helplessness with reference to my own impulses, this is what we call bondage or lack of freedom. And this is, that is all I want. Nobody is interested in any powers. People have wrong ideas about what we want. People think that and people, there are all kinds of powers. Not only do you have the material power, there are spiritual powers also. And people can control with their spiritual powers as well, you know, and then you can threaten. If you displease me, then I'll curse you, you know, you'll go to hell and this will happen to you. And, and pe- you know, you can always control people in different ways. Anyway, and so the need to exercise power, need to control others, also shows nothing but my internal insecurity. So this insecurity, this helplessness, this sense of being persecuted, this is what we call bondage. And moksha means freedom from all of this. And this is all that we want. We don't want anything else. It is not necessary that I need a lot of wealth and I need a lot of power, I need a lot of name and fame. I think that I need, but really, through all of them what I am seeking is just this state of my mind, that I am free. That I am free from compulsion. I am free from helplessness. I am free from insecurity. I do not want to depend upon anybody else to be secure or comfortable. So this is called moksha, as simple as this. Therefore, when Lord Krishna describes a wise person or a person who is liberated, description is always in this sense, description is never with reference to what he possesses. The person is free from raga, bhaya and krodha. He is free from passions, he is free from fear, he is free from anger, that's all. So these are all the internal problems that one has and that is why I am not free. It is my anger that dictates me, it is my fear that dictates me, it is my attachment that dictates me and therefore I am being dictated by them. When he meets with a situation that can be called unfavorable, then also he maintains the composure of the mind. When he confronts a situation which is very favorable, then also he doesn't, uh, he doesn't crave for, for, for having it. Free from any kind of retaliation, free from craving, free from the need to protect himself, free from a sense of insecurity. This is the freedom that is described in, in, the, in Bhagavad Gita. Samadukha sukha swastha samaloshtashmakanchanah tulya priya priyodhira tulya nindatma samstadihi. Somebody who is, who likes him, somebody who dislikes him, somebody who praises him, somebody who censures him, somebody who honors him, somebody who dishonors him. He confronts with all these people. Samaha, he is equal to all of them. So he is even minded or sameness of the mind to all of them. <coughs> so this is how moksha is described in the Bhagavad Gita. Sarva karmani manasa sanyasyaste sukham vashi navadvare puredehi naivakurvan nakaren. He lives happily in his body, which is his city. In the city of nine gates, he lives very happily. Naivakurvan nakaren. Not doing anything, not compelling anybody else to do anything. Sukhamaste, he lives happily. So this is very simple term. We find that the liberal moksha is described in very simple terms in the Bhagavad Gita. It's a very simple thing. Otherwise, elsewhere it is so complicated. You always imagine moksha as something arising from bottom and going up to the top. It's something happening. 
Or from my crown of the head, the 1000 petal lotus is there and from there the shower of bliss is coming down or something. Or that I am endowed with variety of powers that I can control your mind, you know, I can read what's happening in your mind, I can control you sitting here. Or I go to a very special place where, you know, there are different kinds of pleasures or whatever. So in these terms, the moksha is described in many places, everywhere. In everywhere other than Vedanta, moksha is always described in this, some or the other way. That way I think Vedanta is the simplest thing in life. There is nothing simpler than Vedanta. Because truth happens to be very simple. Moksha happens to be very simple. And moksha happens to my own self. And I am a very simple person. Because of ignorance, I have just complicated myself. I have become a very complex person. But I really happen to be a very simple person. And therefore, that is where the happiness is. In being simple. So simplicity is what Bhagavad Gita teaches us. That's it. Simplicity is taught in the name of renunciation and stuff like that. What is renunciation? Just being a simple person. So this is how Bhagavad Gita describes moksha. And this is something that is achievable everybody. If you think moksha is attaining certain powers and I, or climbing average, then I don't know whether I can do it or not. If moksha means going to some place like heavens or Brahmaloka, I don't know that I can do it. If moksha is described in terms other than myself, then I can never be sure that I can achieve that. But here, moksha is described in my own, you know, in terms of myself. And therefore, it becomes achievable. We can say that this moksha or liberation is the fundamental right of every human being because every human being is capable of achieving this. Because it is achievement of what is already achieved. It is not achievement of what is not achieved. Had it been achievement of something unachieved, you can never be sure whether you can achieve or not, because then it requires qualification. See, whenever you want to achieve something that you don't have, you require a qualification to achieve that. You must be Brahmana, Kshatriya, this, you know, and so forth. Women cannot do this, children cannot do this, men cannot do this, this fellow cannot do this, Shudra cannot do this, whatever it is. When it comes to moksha, everybody is fine. Because everybody's nature happens, you see, then the only qualification is that I am already liberated. And it is to be recognized. So that, understand that there is no adhikaritvam, there is no qualification when it comes to Vedanta. Vedantins do talk of qualification, not in terms of birth, not in terms of sex, not in any other terms. They talk of adhikaritvam, the fitness, in terms of only the preparation of mind or maturity of mind. And so, thus this moksha, liberation, is we call unconditional freedom. Freedom from anything external to me and freedom from what is within me, a total comfort, put it this way, I am comfortable. With the world outside me, I am comfortable. With myself, just a sense of comfort, total comfort. That is the moksha, liberation. That is samadhi, what else is it? What they call samadhi, or the absorption is what? When all discomfort has gone away, that's all. When I am totally comfortable with myself and with things around me, then there is no reaction from me. There is no distraction in my mind, therefore the mind is completely dissolved. So, even though the yogas may talk about samadhi through many means like pranayama, etc., the Vedantin for him, samadhi is to remove whatever obstacles are there that are making me uncomfortable and thus a state of total comfort. A total comfort with the world around me and a total comfort with myself, this is moksha. 
And this is the primary thing of Bhagavad Gita because this is what a human being is primarily seeking. And therefore, Bhagavad Gita addresses this primary need of the human being. <coughs> Knowing that unless this primary need is satisfied, that he is not really satisfied with anything else. <coughs> However, Bhagavad Gita also recognizes that in order to gain this moksha, some preparation, what we call emotional maturity is required. And therefore, Bhagavad Gita also prescribes the means of that emotional maturity. <coughs> this is called Yoga Shastra. Or it is called Sanyasa also. So this is Moksha Sanyasa Yoga. See, this word Yoga could also be said to be Sanyasa. Either we can say that Bhagavad Gita teaches us Yoga, or we can say Bhagavad Gita teaches us Sanyasa. As we will discuss that all along what Bhagavad Gita teaches us is Sanyasa. Sanyasa means renunciation. So this chapter is Moksha Sanyasa Yoga. Well, moksha is the end, Sanyasa is the means. Well, you can do Sanyasa also is an end. As we will see, Sanyasa is of two types, Sanyasa is an end and Sanyasa is a means. So then Moksha and Sanyasa are not different. If Sanyasa is an end, then Moksha and Sanyasa are not different. Because the ideal sannyas is described as a liberated person. And I just quoted that verse. Navadvare puredehi naivakurvan nakarayan sarvakarmani manasa sannyasya. Renouncing all the actions by knowledge, he just lives happily with himself and with the world. Naivakurvan nakarayan. Not doing anything. Because he doesn't need to do anything. He doesn't need to change anything. Why do we want to do something? Because there is need to change. If I am not comfortable with the given situation, I need to change it so that I become comfortable. If I am not comfortable with the way things around me are, then I want to change them so that I become comfortable. Or if I am not comfortable with the way I am, then there is a need to change so that I become comfortable. But suppose I am comfortable with the way things are around me, and comfortable with the way things are with me, then what? So what happens if you are hungry? Suppose I am comfortable with that. What if you are thirsty? I am comfortable with that. What if you are headache? I am comfortable with that. What if there is heat outside? Comfortable with that. With heat and cold and honor and dishonor and pleasure and pain, whatever be the situation, suppose I am comfortable. Understand that discomfort is an emotional problem, you know. It's not a physical problem, it's an emotional problem. I'm uncomfortable with something when it does not fulfill my demands, that's all. I'm a demanding person, therefore, when somebody or something fulfills my demands, I'm happy. When the room fulfills my demand, I'm unhappy. So suppose I'm free from demands. When I can be fulfilled from demands, when I am not demanding. Because whatever I am demanding, I already have. And what is it that I already have? Myself. I already have myself, and when I when that fulfills all my demands, then I become a non-demanding person. Atmaniva, Atmanatushtaha. One who is satisfied with himself by himself. Prajahati, Yadakaman, Sarvan, Parthamanogatan. And therefore one who has become free from all the demands. So Bhagavad Gita says, he is free from all the desires. We can translate that word kama into demands, he is free from all the demands. So freedom from demand is another definition of moksha. He is just free from all the demands. And when there is no demand, naiva kurvan nakaren. No need to do anything, nor any need to make someone else do something. Sometimes I do not do something, but I, you know, make other people do something. That also can happen. 
I never go out for bhiksha. Bhiksha comes to me. The same thing, you know. It is, at least I make known to the people that, well, when it is 12.30, the bhiksha must be here. When it is 8.30 in the morning, breakfast must be here. 6.30 in the evening, dinner must be there. I don't demand. But everybody knows. And therefore, I may not do something, but I make other people do. To fulfill my demands. So understand that when I do something, or when I prompt others to do something, basically it is to fulfill one or the other demands that I have. So imagine a person, or imagine yourself, you are totally free from any demand. Imagine that you are comfortable with the way things this pain in my, my uh, knees, doesn't matter. Swamiji, I do not know what my, what the tomorrow's meal will be from, I don't, doesn't matter. Suppose, suppose nothing matters to you, or suppose everything is fine as it is. Then mind becomes truly non-demanding because it is comfortable or happy with everything as it is. Then that is called liberation. <coughs> so, that moksha also is sannyasa. What is sannyasa? A total freedom from demands. A total freedom from need to possess. A total freedom from need to control. That is the... Because through every action also I am trying to control something. Really. When I perform an action I am always manipulating something to, to control or bring about some, to, you know, something to become agreeable to me or favorable to me. And thus a freedom from every kind of a need. This is the moksha as well as sannyasa. So this is the, you can call moksha or sannyasa. Both of these are really the subject matter of Bhagavad Gita. So 18th chapter is called moksha, sannyasa, yoga. Moksha, which of the nature of sannyasa. How we say that sannyasa is of two types, sannyasa is the end and sannyasa is the means. And therefore in the 18th chapter, we also find discussion of both sannyasa as a means and sannyasa is end. <coughs> so we can say that whereas Bhagavad Gita teaches us how to attain moksha, Bhagavad Gita teaches us the sannyasa as a means to attain the moksha. And so moksha and the sannyasa are the subject matters of Bhagavad Gita, they are the subject matters of the 18th chapter of the Gita also. So let us uh, read the first verse here in your chem booklet. <coughs> it opens with this question of Arjuna. Arjuna Uvacha, Arjuna Uvacha, Sanyasasya Mahabaho, Sanyasasya Mahabaho, Tatvamichami Veditum, Tatvamichami Veditum. Tyagasya charushi kesha, Tyagasya charushi kesha, Prathakkeshini shudana, Prathakkeshini shudana. Arjuna Huvacha, Arjuna said, So, uh, Arjuna asked a very relevant question. Knowing what Bhagavad Lord Krishna has taught him so far, and therefore he says, Hey Mahabaho, O mighty arm, Lord, Sanyasasya tattvam vedu michyami. I desire to know the tattvam, the very truth of sanyasa. So he wants clarification. In short, he wants, I guess, the Lord to summarize, you know. 
he wants the Lord to summarize the very theme that the Lord has been teaching and that is sannyasa. Therefore, O oh Lord, I want to know the truth of sannyasa. And also I want to know the truth of Tyaga. Tyaga means renunciation also. Really, sannyasa and Tyaga are not really different. However, Lord Krishna has used both these words in the Bhagavad Gita, as we shall say. Sannyasa as well as Tyaga. Both these words are used. Both the words actually mean only renunciation. But therefore, Arjuna wants to know the Tattvam. Tattva means the very truth or the very essence of the truth he wants to get now, he wants to get a clarification. So he's already listened to sannyasa and tyaga in all these chapters, but he just wants to get a clarity about this because Lord Krishna has talked about sannyasa in many places, has talked about tyaga also in many places. So Arjuna seeks to know now in, in, a, in, a, in a very clear way. So what has been stated in many places, please tell me the essence of sannyasa and tyaga, so as to get a total clarity in my mind. He understands, but he wants to get a total clarity. And in so doing, he addresses Lord Krishna, he, address, he has three names for Lord Krishna. Mahabaho, Rushikesha, Keshinishudana. Just out of a tremendous love for Lord Krishna, I guess, you know, so he uses not one, not two, but three names for Lord Krishna. Mahabaho, the mighty armed one, that shows the might of Lord Krishna. You know, what do you use your arms for? For protection. Usually a person uses arms represent the strength, and the strength is only used for protection. But Lord Krishna's strength is used for protection of others. Particular protection of the devotees. And Arjuna is of course a devotee of Lord Krishna, because Lord Krishna himself acknowledged that in the fourth chapter, Bhakto Sime Sakhachedi Rahasyam Shetuduttam Here Juna, you are my friend and you are my devotee. That's the reason why I have told you this greatest of secrets. And so Lord Krishna is addressed as mighty armed one because his might is used for protecting the devotees. Reminding Lord Krishna or invoking that aspect from the Lord that I am your devotee and I am seeking your protection. Other is Keshi Nishudana. The slayer of a demon called Keshi. Keshi was a demon. Like many who came, you know, to Lord, to kill Lord Krishna. Many emissaries or many of these fellows were sent by Kamsa, his, his maternal uncle, to kill Lord Krishna. One of them was this demon called Keshi. This demon came in the form of a horse. And uh, he wanted to swallow this little Lord Krishna. And so what did Lord Krishna do is, he op- the horse opened his mouth and Lord placed his left hand in his mouth. Except that the hand then started growing and it filled up the whole mouth and therefore he made his mouth even larger, wider and the ho- hand became, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until the horse was, you know, he was, he was torn apart. This is the story of this uh, slaying or destruction, um, you know, killing this, this uh, demon Keshi. Some people say, what is this Swami? Is Lord Krishna killing these people one after the other? But as you say, he is karma phaladata. He is the dispenser of the result of the action. And these people were destined, you know, otherwise how, whatever, these, all these demons were destined to die in this manner. 
and also they were fortunate enough to come to Lord Krishna and be killed by his hand, at his hands, and so that he'll, they'll be liberated anyway. So in fact, he always blessed them, he never killed anybody. Lord Krishna cannot kill anybody because Krishna means the one that attracts everything. And Krishna, therefore, is an embodiment of nothing but joy as well as love. And he cannot kill anybody. So we just look upon all this killing of the demons as what happens when there is total love. How in the very present the total love, everything gets dissolved. And therefore, all these demoniac tendencies also which come up one after the other. In the presence of love, all of them get completely dispelled. So this is how the meaning of these uh, incidents is to be looked at. But anyway, so that also shows his might. So Rishikesh, I mean, Bahabaho and Keshini Shudana. These two addresses of Lord Krishna shows this capability of removing all external obstacles that can come. So a person is subject to external problems as well as internal problems. I may be attacked or I may be, you know, I may be threatened by things external to me. And then also I need the protection of the Lord. And so Arjuna is in fact seeking their protection by addressing Lord Krishna as Mahabahu and Keshini Shudana that, O oh Lord, you are the one who is, who is capable of warding off all the external obstacles that can come. And then there are internal obstacles also. As you said, all these kind of impulses, such as anger and lust and greed and jealousy and all of these also are internal demons. They are the internal demoniac tendencies and we need protection of Lord there as well. And in with reference to that, Arjuna addresses Lord Krishna as Rushikesha. Rushikanam, Indriyanam, Ishaha, Rushikesha. Rushika means Indriya, the sense organs. So Lord Krishna is addressed as the one who is a lot of sense organs. Who is the Lord of the sense organs? As the very self. As the very self who dwells in the hearts of all the living beings, he is the one who controls all the mind, as well as controls the sense organs. Therefore, O Rishikesha, O indwelling spirit of, O indwelling self of all the beings, the one who is the controller of all my sense organs and all the various impulses of the mind, please also protect me from the inner obstacles. So Mahabaho and Keshini Shudana. So these are the, that show the might of the Lord to ward off all the external problems, obstacles. And Rishikesha, the one who is the impeller of the sense organs, one who is the one who enlivens the sense organs. So he is a master of the inner organs and then will please ward off all the internal obstacles as well. So thus, you know, the, the kind of name that you use also is to invoke a certain aspect that you want at this time. And this is what Arjuna wants. O oh Lord, please teach me again, very protect. So Tattvam, I want to know I have heard from you, no question about it, but I still want you to summarize for me. And in clear terms, you have said it in many places, but I want just a very clear enunciation of what is meant by sannyasa, and I also want a clear enunciation of what is meant by tyaga. Please tell me, is sannyasa and tyaga, so sannyasa also means renunciation, tyaga also means renunciation, are these two different kinds of renunciations or both these words mean essentially the same? Is there some difference between the two words? So two questions are asked by Arjuna. The one that sannyasa and tyaga, are these, do they have different meanings? Sannyasa means renunciation, tyaga also means renunciation, 
But then do sannyasa and tyaga, do they have different meanings? That's one question. Please tell me that. Suppose you say that no, Arjuna, really they are not two different things, they are basically one thing only, all right. Suppose sannyasa and tyaga is one alone, then tattva michana vedidum. Please tell me the very tattva, please tell me the very truth or essence of what is renunciation. Because Arjuna recognizes that what Lord Krishna has taught so far is renunciation. And therefore, he just warns again a summary from Lord Krishna as to what the sannyasa or renunciation is. So this is how 18th chapter opens with this request on the part of Arjuna to explaining the truth or the essence of sannyasa or renunciation. And Lord Krishna gets an opportunity to summarize and very clear, in very clear terms, what is the meaning of this sannyasa and jaga. Okay, we'll continue. <clears throat> Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavashashyate Om Shanti 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 Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Vadarayanam Sutra Bhashakruta Vande Bhagavantau Punapunaha Ishvaro Guru Ratmevi Murti Veda Vibhagine Vyoma Vadyapta Dehaya Dakshina Murtaye Namaha Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Shri Guru 